In Daniel chapter 9, if Daniel were a mountain, today we gaze at the very peak of that mountain. It is to me one of the most awesome sections in all the Bible. It is something that I have used in witnessing with skeptics over the years, and it's been a fascinating experience with it. At the same time, it is technical, and uh, I feel a little bit concerned with the deaf section, the interpretation of some of the technical facts that we'll go through. I will do my best to make it as simple as possible. Let's pray, shall we? Father, as we open up now this amazing prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks, I pray, Father, that even as the angel gave Daniel skill to understand, that you might give us skill to understand it, Lord. And not only skill, but a heart that would rejoice in a God who is so meticulous and so detailed and so concerned with such things that we can trust our lives in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. How exact is God? Is God ever late? Does He always keep His appointments? Is He on time? Now, I know that you have questioned if God is on time or not in your own personal lives. Sometimes you've wondered. I grew up with a father who was notoriously late. Whenever he would pick me up, he would always be there, but he would always be late. Sometimes an hour or over an hour late. When he would pick me up from school, I would be that last kid moping by the flagpole waiting for somebody to pick me up. Or for sporting events, he was late. Now, I haven't been flawless. There's been several times where I've been late. Once I was late to a wedding that I was to perform. I got the directions confused. I couldn't understand the map. And finally, I had to make a phone call to get to this place. I was late for the wedding that I performed. I was late one time for a speaking engagement in North Carolina at the Billy Graham Training Center, the Cove. I was on at a certain time, and the plane was delayed, and I did my best, but I was about a half an hour late. So I just told the song leader, keep playing those songs until I get there. Jesus was accused of being late when he came to Martha and Mary's house for Lazarus' funeral. Mary or Martha had sent for Jesus days before. And when Jesus got there, that sharp accusation fell from her lips. If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, was Jesus late? He was just on time for that resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. He wasn't late at all. And Peter reminds us, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. And I hope that that is incredibly demonstrated for you as you look at this prophecy this morning. Have you ever heard people say to you things like, oh yeah, the Bible, you can't trust it. Okay, it's a good book, but it's a bunch of old books written by a bunch of old men and it has nothing whatsoever to do with our personal lives on a practical level for modern times. Oh, it's, it's a book to be admired, like the Koran or the Upanishads or... Uh, William Shakespeare. It's a great book. Study it, admire it, but nothing more. Now, there are those nuts, fanatics, who believe that this book is actually the Word of God. I'm one of those nuts. 
I believe that God is so sovereign and so incredibly detailed, and Daniel chapter 9, one of many other prophecies, has been a demonstration of that over the years. I hope you see that today. Um, this book of Daniel has a lot on prophecy. The Bible has a lot on prophecy. A pastor was speaking to his colleagues, talking about prophecy. He said, I never teach on prophecy. I find that if you teach on prophecy, it's just a distraction from the present. Well, if that's the case, said one of his other colleagues, then there's a lot of distractions in the Bible. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of prophecy in the Bible. Prophecy is history written in advance. And Daniel chapter 9 is the backbone of Bible prophecy. You're going to find it deals with Israel, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Antichrist. Now you say, boy, that's a lot to cover in four verses. It must be a Reader's Digest version. Actually, it's very, very detailed and mathematical. And so put your thinking caps on, buckle your seatbelts, because you're going to go on an adventure this morning. And we want to look at these verses five different ways, five facets of the same diamond. We want to look at it generally. Then we want to look at it specifically. Then we'll look at it messianically. Then we'll look at it futuristically from our standpoint. Then finally, personally. We'll personally apply it to our lives. Let's look at it generally, and let's look at these verses and read them together. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, sixty-two weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. A few general things to notice. It's an answer to Daniel's prayer. That's the first thing you've got to remember. This came as an answer to Daniel's specific prayer. He was reading Jeremiah's bestseller. The prophecies of Jeremiah, that Israel would spend 70 years in captivity in Babylon and then be released. Daniel reads it and says, 70's almost up. It's time to go home. He immediately gets on his knees and he starts praying, confessing the sins of his people, asking God to return the Jews back to their land, while he is praying, the angel Gabriel appears to him in a human form. He doesn't give him funny glasses like supposedly Moroni gave to Joseph Smith. This is not the face of Jesus in a tortilla shell like you've read about in the newspapers. This is a bona fide visit from a bona fide angel giving him a bona fide plan for the future. Back in verse 20, for the reasons of context and understanding, 
We read, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, that's Zion in Jerusalem, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and he said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. That's a good thing, especially when we read through this. You'll think, boy, I, I wish I had some of that. And I trust that you will. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So it's an answer to prayer, but the answer supersedes the request. He did, didn't bargain for this kind of an answer, a prophetic key to the future. There's another general thing you should notice. In verse 24, who is this directed towards? It's not Gentile world rulers or the church. It's directed to Israel. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. This is a prophecy concerning the Jewish nation and the Jewish Messiah. Principally, it's to Israel and the holy city of Jerusalem. The other general thing to notice is that it is a set time period. Seventy weeks are determined. The word determined in Hebrew means to cut or divide. In other words, out of all of human history, God had set aside a period of time he calls 70 weeks to accomplish certain things, to get things done. These are divine appointments that God has for set purposes. Now this should kill the argument of the deist who says, yeah, there's a God, he exists, but the God who created the earth, it's sort of like a watchmaker. He's wound up this whole thing and then he just sort of steps back, very uninvolved, aloof and unattached, and he watches the whole thing. He's not really involved in our world. That's a bunch of bunk. God is very involved and you'll examine a very detailed prophecy about certain things being accomplished during this period of time. Now it says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. I'd like to spend a few moments on the word week and weeks. Because when you think of a week, you think of seven days. The Hebrew language is Shabua, plural Shabuim which means literally seven. That's all it means, seven. It doesn't mean a week of days. It means 70 sevens are determined for your people and for your holy city. Seventy Shabuim are determined. Now, to the Jews, that could either mean a week of days or a week of years. In fact, much of ancient Jewish literature talks about weeks of years. And to the Jewish mind, it could mean either or. Simply 70 sevens are determined. In our modern times, we think in units of ten for the most part. A decade, we call it. And a decade simply means a ten. It could be a ten of anything. We think of it as ten years usually. Ancient Hebrews thought in terms of seven. We would call that a heptad, just like a decade, a set of seven years. There were seven days in a week. Six days you would work. The seventh day was the Sabbath. You would hang out in a sanctified way. You'd rest. Then you would work the land as a farmer for six years. 
The seventh year was the Sabbath year, not just the Sabbath day being the seventh day. There was a Sabbath year. That's written about in the Old Testament. Six years you work, the seventh year you hang out and let the land just produce whatever it will. You don't work. You take a year off. Wouldn't that be great? Just take a year off and just hang out. The Jews did that. The seventh year was to be fallow agriculturally. Not only that, but there were seven periods of seven years. Forty-nine years. And the 50th year in Leviticus 25 is called the Jubilee year. So the ancient Jews dealt in periods of seven, not just seven days, but also seven-year periods. Okay, now, let's just pause for a moment. Why were they in captivity? Well, for a lot of reasons. Basically, they disobeyed God. But principally, because they failed to keep the Sabbath year. What, what that means is they worked six years, and the seventh year, they were so greedy to get more out of the land, they didn't rest. They kept harvesting, they kept taking and producing. They did that for 490 years. 490 years, Israel disobeyed God and, and kept that land going. Well, how many Sabbath years is 490 years? Seventy. How long was Israel in captivity? Seventy years. Now this is what God predicted in Second Chronicles chapter 36. It says, He carried them away into Babylon until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill seventy years. They sinned for 490 years straight, which was seventy years. The land should have laid fallow. God says, You owe me seventy. I'll make sure the land gets a rest by going to captivity. Now that's the mindset that Daniel has as he's reading Jeremiah 25 and 29. We've sinned for 490 years. God has taken 70 by taking us into captivity. And he's reading this. Most scholars look at 70 weeks as weeks of years. Almost every scholar across the board sees this as not a week of days, but weeks of years, for obvious reasons. As you read what has to take place, it couldn't be weeks of days. That'd be 490 days. That's about a year and a third, a little over a year and a third. That's not enough time for all of these things to have happened. The Jewish commentators, the Mishnah, the Talmud, all speak of weeks of years. In fact, if you have a revised standard version this morning, it actually says 70 weeks of years are decreed for your holy people and for the city of Jerusalem. That's the sense of it. Seventy periods of seven years, or 490 years. That's generally. Let's look at it specifically. Verse 24. There are six things that have to happen. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at this. I look at it this way. The first three have been fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus Christ. The second three will be fulfilled when he comes again. Everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. Now, remember, it deals with Israel principally. 
It deals with Israel. To finish the transgression, that is the rebellion of Israel against God and the return of the Jews to their land. And then secondly, to make an end of sins. On the cross, Jesus bore our sins in his own body. But it won't be really till he comes the second time that the world enters into it, especially Israel, fully and completely. Thirdly, to make reconciliation for iniquity. A better translation, to atone for iniquity. To atone. The word is kafar. means to cover over. The covering over of iniquity. You see, when Jesus came the first time, you really got to get this fixed in your heart as to why he came. Jesus didn't come to pass on nice little sayings to be recorded in a positive little book. Oh yeah, Jesus, he's like so many other prophets who have come. He said so many nice things. That's why he came. No, Jesus is not one of many ascended masters. Jesus came to deal with the issue no one else could deal with, and that is sin, iniquity. It needed to be dealt with, and it was dealt with fully and completely at the cross. He was the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's why he came. He came to take the sin issue. That's why in the book of Acts, the apostle stood up and said, There is only one name given among men by which we must be saved. Because he and he alone dealt with the sin issue. I have a Christmas card that I have kept in my files. I kept a few of them. The ones that I really like, this one really spoke to my heart. got it a few years ago. And on the front it said, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need would have been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness And so God sent us a Savior. He came to deal with iniquity and sin. But look at the next three. To bring in everlasting righteousness. When he comes again, this is what he'll take care of. To seal up vision and prophecy, the fulfilling of all predictions. And to anoint the most holy. The most holy is the Hebrew Kodesh Kadeshim, which almost always in the Old Testament refers to the temple. The temple itself. And this seems to speak of a future temple in the kingdom age, which is spoken about in detail beginning in Ezekiel chapter 41. You might want to go home and check up on that. Okay, that's specifically. Now, beginning in verse 25, let's look at this thing messianically because we're dealing with the time of the Messiah. Verse 25 says, Know, therefore, and understand. Let's be committed to that, to know it. And to understand it. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven, one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and to offering. Now, we are, in these verses, at the very pinnacle of prophecy. 
I almost get goosebumps every time I still read this and I, I get the opportunity to go through it. Because we're dealing with the time of the Messiah, as it is already mentioned in this verse. Now, classic Jewish commentators who say, Jesus is not the Messiah. This verse says the Messiah, but it simply means an anointed one. It could refer to many different people, including King Cyrus, whom they say this is speaking of. But the term Mashiach Nagid, you shouldn't repeat that without covering your mouth. The Messiah, the Prince, when you put those words together, speak of none other than the Messiah of Israel. And listen to one ancient rabbi before the time of Jesus Christ who said, In Daniel is delivered to us the time of the appearance and the death of the Messiah. These are quotes from ancient rabbis that many people today wouldn't want you to know about. It deals with the Messiah. This is a messianic prediction. Okay, you've got 490 years, 77ths. It's divided into three sections. Did you notice that? The first period is seven, 49 years, and then 62 weeks, 434 years, and then one final seven, which is seven years. Good. What's the starting point? Well, it says... Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. The day that this 70-week time period begins, 490 years begin, is from the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. On that day begins the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, the only thing is we have a problem. There were four edicts given. Four edicts in history given for the Jews to rebuild. You say, oh, now we have a problem. No, we don't. It's very, very easy. Listen carefully. Let's go through the four. The first one was by King Cyrus, the guy who took over Babylon as a Medo-Persian. When he took it over, it's recorded, by the way, in Ezra chapter 1, it was the general edict to the Jews, go back home, you are now free, and rebuild your temple. He didn't say the city, but the temple. The second edict is mentioned in Ezra chapter 6 by King Darius. And it's simply a reiteration of what Cyrus said. Go back and build the temple. Then if you read Ezra chapter 7, you have a guy by the name of Artaxerxes saying, as you go back, start the temple sacrifices and all of the services once again. All of them had to do with the temple or the services of the temple. But there is one other edict given. It's found in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2, given by King Artaxerxes, Longimanus, in the 20th year of his reign. Remember, Nehemiah heard about what was going on in Jerusalem, that the city was destroyed, the walls were burned, the gates burned with fire. It was all destroyed. He asked permission of Artaxerxes, let me go back and initiate the building, not of the temple, but of the city along with the temple. And it was on that date that the edict was given, go back and restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the entire thing. And that date happens to be very well attested in history. It's March 14th, 445 B.C. March 14th, 445 B.C., is the day that the command was given to restore and build Jerusalem. That's very important. 
Look again at verse 26. It mentions the Messiah. From the going forth of that command, March 14, 445 B.C., until Mashiach, Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince, shall be 62 weeks, or 7 plus 62. 7 has been fulfilled, and then 62, 69 weeks, 483 years. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. There's a guy by the name of Sir Robert Anderson, and if you like this technical kind of stuff, he was the first guy that started studying it. We have it in the bookstore. Sir Robert Anderson, a book called The Coming Prince. He worked for Scotland Yard. He had all of his calculations verified by the uh, Royal Observatory, the British Royal Observatory. He found that date, March 14th, 445 B.C., and he made all of the computations and calculations to see how exact God was. He calculated it to the very day. Beginning at March 14th, 445 B.C., the command to restore and build Jerusalem, and he counted... All of those years, 483 of them, as being 173,880 days. You say, well, Skip, so far this is a fancy math lesson. What's the point? 173,880 days. So what? Well, the so what comes on that day, the 173,880th day. It happens to be April 6th, 32 A.D., April 6, 32 A.D., which in the Jewish calendar is the 10th of Nisan. This is not Nisan, the car company. This is the Jewish month of Nisan. And the 10th of Nisan, what happened? That's the day when all the Jews select the lamb for the sacrifice. But on April 6, 32 A.D., 173,880 days after the command to restore and build Jerusalem, it says, until the Messiah, the Prince... We come to April 6, 32 A.D., the day that Jesus tells his disciples, go into the next village and bring me that young colt. I'm going to sit on it. And he goes into Jerusalem on April 6, 32 A.D., and the crowd says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the first and only time he presented himself as Israel's Messiah. All the other times he told his disciples, don't tell people who I am. Keep it quiet. But not on this day. It was heralded. Now, as Jesus is going down into Jerusalem on April 6, 32 A.D., 173,880 days after March 14, 445 B.C., he stops a little bit shy of the city. He begins weeping over the city. And I think at this point we should turn to the book of Luke. And let's see what he says. In Luke chapter 19... Verse 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept. The word wept means he wept out loud audibly. He wept over it saying, if you had known, now listen carefully, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, 
And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you would have only known, especially today, what day, what visitation? The 173,880th day from March 14th, 445 B.C. Here I am. He presents himself to the nation. He holds them accountable for the day as Messiah the Prince would be presented to the Jewish people. That's what I call keeping a promise. It's not sort of, maybe, around that time, on that exact date, he came into Jerusalem. That's keeping a promise. It's been said that promises can get friends, but only performance keeps them. That's why God has managed to keep a lot of friends over the years. Because he keeps his promises. Even those of us living today holding on to these ancient promises because God's promises are like stars. The darker it gets, the brighter they shine. And we have hope in our future because of some of the things that are yet predicted. Now, a warning to you. You may go home. I already see some of you with your heads down, your pencils out. You're trying to figure all this thing out. You might go home, get your calculator, come back and flash numbers in my face saying, You're wrong, Skip. You're wrong. I calculated it. I've got 176,295 days. That's because you've made a grave error. You've used the Julian calendar, which is based upon the solar movement, 365 and a third days. The ancient calendar of the Jews and Babylon, which really formed the calendar, was 360 days per year. It's based on the lunar calendar, the movement of the moon. The Jewish calendar of 360 days, they kept that. And every few years, the Jews actually added an extra month to keep the calendar updated. Sir Robert Anderson did the calculations, added leap years. It was again attested by the Royal Observatory in London and came up with the 173,880th day. The only problem is, is Messiah did come on that day, but they killed him. And that's predicted also in verse 26. Back to Daniel. And after the 62 weeks, 7, 49 years, 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks altogether, Messiah shall be cut off. Interesting word, cut off. It's the Hebrew word karat. It means two different things. To cut when you make a covenant with somebody. But it also means, the word karat, to punish with death by piercings. To punish with death by piercings. Jesus was put up on a Roman cross and pierced for our transgression. Notice, not for himself. He'll be cut off not for himself. He wasn't a criminal. He didn't deserve it. He was cut off in death, not for himself, but for us. Remember, John the Baptist saw Jesus earlier on and said... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Interesting. The tenth of Nisan, he came in the very day when Israel selected the Lamb for slaughter. There are other things predicted here, though, in verse 26. It says, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood, the end of the war, uh, and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. That's exactly what Jesus predicted. Here I've come. This is the day of your visitation. This is the day you should have known about. 
You've refused to accept me. Now I see your future. Your enemies will come in and cast a trench about you and destroy you. Daniel predicted it. Jesus predicted it. It was fulfilled April 6th, 70 A.D. Titus and the Roman legions surround Jerusalem and level the city, the sanctuary, destroy it, killing many of the people, taking others captive. It was destroyed. The Romans came in and destroyed it. Now, P.S., before we move on. When Daniel sees this, and he predicts this, at the point that he sees all this, he's in Babylon. Over in Jerusalem, the temple is still lying desolate. It hasn't been rebuilt yet. He sees a rebuilt temple, the Messiah coming, and the temple being destroyed, which means the Messiah has to have come before the second temple was destroyed, as predicted. The Messiah has to have come before the second temple was destroyed. Another proof, of course, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Fourthly, let's look at this futuristically. There's still a part of this that isn't fulfilled. That's verse 27. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one Shabuah, one period of seven. A week, a week of years. And in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. There's still more to come. You say, why is there more to come? Because the 70 weeks haven't yet been completed. You say, how do you know the 70 weeks haven't been completed? Well, have you looked around and checked? Is there everlasting righteousness? Have you seen it lately? Maybe I've missed something. I don't see everlasting righteousness as predicted that would occur by the end of the 70th week. Uh, I don't see the anointing of the Most Holy in that glorious temple. I don't see the end of all prophecy and vision. These things have yet to be fulfilled. There's still a period of time out there that is yet unfulfilled. Now, 69 of those weeks have been fulfilled. And on the 69th the, the day of the 69th week, until Messiah the Prince, the end of that week, Messiah rode into Jerusalem. Four days later, he was killed. From that time until now, there's been this huge gap. The 70th week has not begun. That seven-year period, which we call the tribulation period, from looking at the book of Revelation, there's this gap. God has turned, so to speak, And not just included the Jewish nation, but has poured out His grace to all the world, to the Gentiles. Anybody who will accept Jesus Christ today, Israel's Messiah, can be saved. That's been going on for 2,000 years. You say, well, wait a minute. If that's true, why didn't Daniel see this gap of the church? If 69 weeks have ended and the 70th week is yet to be fulfilled, that's a big gap. Why didn't Daniel see it? Very simply. Paul the Apostle explains in Ephesians chapter 3... The people and the prophets of the Old Testament time did not see this mystery of God including Jews and Gentiles in one body called the church. It was hidden from their eyes until the New Testament times. Listen, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which was not made known to the men in other generations, as it has been revealed by the Spirit of God's, the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets, This mystery that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promises of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's been a 2,000-year parenthesis, a gap, 
which the time clock for Israel has stopped. He's poured out His grace to anyone and everyone worldwide who will accept Him. But the time is coming when the fullness of the Gentiles, Romans chapter 11, is fulfilled and God turns the prophetic time clock, the last seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, for the nation of Israel. If you look in verse 27, during that time a temple is going to be present. An abomination is predicted. The abomination means the sacrifices will be stopped in that temple in Jerusalem. That is still yet future. How do I know it's future? Jesus said, When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, everyone in Judea flee to the mountains. He spoke of it as something yet future. The person who's going to come on the scene is a prince. Now, the first prince in verse 26 of the people was Titus. He destroyed the city. But there's going to come a guy in verse 27 related to the first Roman Empire. He's called the Antichrist. And we've discussed that Roman Empire thing in previous studies in Daniel. So I think you have that under your belt. This Antichrist will make a covenant. He will promise the Jews the building of their temple. They'll think he's this great hero until in the middle of that week, three and a half years into the tribulation, he will perform the abomination of desolation. He'll break the pact. He'll cause the sacrifices to cease. And he will persecute the Jewish nation. I think that this Antichrist will be everything the world wanted, but it will backfire on him. I heard of a girl who went to a computer dating service. She was very specific as to what she wanted in a man. She wrote all those things down and fed it into the computer. She wanted somebody who liked people, somebody who was short in stature, somebody who liked formal attire, and somebody who loved water sports. The computer center of Penguin. (laughs) The world will want somebody who brings... Economic solidarity, political solidarity, breaks down the walls, solves the world's problems. He'll come on the scene and go, yes, yes, peace, peace. It will backfire on them. It will be a false Messiah. That's why I shuddered when I first was in Jerusalem and I saw this huge banner at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall of the Jews, that said, get ready, the Messiah is coming. (sighs) Yeah, but which one? One that will promise you things but not fulfill them, will break his promise. One that fits all of the little things that you want. Back in 1991, an article from Christian Century cited that the Jews in Israel said, quote, recent world events such as the fall of the Iron Curtain, the influx of Ethiopian and Soviet Jews into Israel, and the Gulf War are evidence that Messiah's arrival cannot be far off. They're still waiting for the first coming. He's already come. He had to have come before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., according to the Scriptures. And He's coming again. But there will come, before Jesus comes again, a false Christ who will make a pact and break the covenant in the midst of that seven-year period. All right. Enough said. The fifth way to view Daniel's 70 weeks is practically. Practically, personally, for your own private life. Concerning prophecy, first of all, God is exact. God holds history in His hands. And the personal application of that is if God can give details as to the exact date of the Messiah's arrival into Jerusalem, don't you think that your times and seasons are also in God's hands? 
Aren't you able to trust this kind of a God who's this omniscient, who knows history in advance and speaks in such detail? Doesn't it seem silly to shake and worry and fret when your life is in His hands, if your life truly is in His hands? What do you do with God's promises? Do you just underline them? Do you just memorize them? Or do you really use them? There's a story of Blackfoot, excuse me, Crowfoot was his name. He was the chief of the Blackfoot Indians up in Alberta, Canada. He allowed the Canadian Pacific Railroad to put a stretch of rail between Medicine Hat and Calgary in the days of the railroad. Because of his kindness, the Canadian Pacific Railroad gave to Crowfoot a lifetime pass. He could ride the rail anytime he wanted to show him this little piece of paper free of charge. Record tells us he took the promise and put it in a little leather pouch and wore it around his neck, never once riding the railroad in his lifetime. He had the promise, but he never used it. Oh, how many Christians there are, though. They put those promises on golden little plaques. They have the promise pocket little book. They, they pull it out every day, a promise. And those are great, but they're to be used, stood upon, trusted in, relied upon. Secondly, concerning prayer. Concerning prayer. Daniel was reading all this. Uh, 70 years is almost up. I'm going to pray. As he prayed, the angel gave him this prophecy. Daniel's prayer was in response to God's time clock. I wonder how many of us will now take up the task to pray for our nation, our city, our culture. The people around us, as we see God's time clock coming toward an end, this age of grace, the doors are starting to close. Before the 70th week kicks up, and judgment comes to the earth, and then Jesus Christ comes again. I wonder how many people say, man, I need to pray for my nation. The time clock is winding down. And then I wonder how many of you, after reading this, will turn your life over to God. This book is not a book to be held in esteem like Shakespeare. This is the Word of God. God is detailed. I wonder after examining the prophecies if you'll say, you know, the dumbest thing I could ever do is to reject Christ. The smartest thing I could ever do is to give my life to Him. Let me close with the story of a rabbi from Europe, Leopold Cohen. He was reading Daniel, came upon Daniel 70 weeks, and it struck him like a ton of bricks. After studying what we just studied, he said, I'm convinced that our Messiah must have come before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Who is he? He asked one of his superiors, who is the Messiah? One of his superiors said, go to New York and you'll find him. I don't know why he said that, but he said, go to New York and you'll find your Messiah. He took it literally, stole this stuff, came over to New York City, wandered the streets. Heard music as he was walking down the streets, coming out of a building, walked into the building. It was a Christian meeting. He heard the claims of Christ presented in the clearest form he had ever heard. He gave his life to Jesus Christ, this Jewish rabbi, that night. And then he began an outreach, which became the American Board of Missions to the Jews, started by Rabbi Leopold Cohen after studying the 70 weeks of Daniel. What do you do with this information? Well, you just don't... Chalk it away and go, impressive. God is pretty impressive. You're going to stand before God one day. God knows the end of your life from the beginning. Why don't you turn your life over to Him today? Why don't you say, Lord, 
If Jesus indeed is this Messiah, I want to know him. I want him to change my life. You're dealing with a sovereign, omniscient, powerful God. Just like he knows history in advance, he knows everything you've been doing this week, this month. He knows all of your motivations and he's willing to forgive you of all your sins. So, Father, we turn this service back to you and we ask that in the name of Jesus Christ and through him, you would do a work in saving and touching the lives of people this morning who need to know you. 